Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app. You can also listen on most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Thanks so much for tuning into today's program. We are back up and running live, of course, so we are going to be fielding your phone calls at 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. You can also chime in using hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter and we want you to continue to send in your questions. You've done a great job. You can submit them at Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. We are going to answer a number of them today. And you could also send them directly to our individual Twitter accounts. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants. WFAN. We're going to get into a variety of topics over the course of this program. Some of the second-year players that may be able to make the biggest jump for the Giants as they look to build off of some of the successes they had last season. But, Paul, let's start with news across the league. And every time either a team issues a statement or a local official issues a statement in terms of will the NFL start up on time? What is the status of fans being at stadiums? I think relates, of course, to the New York Giants. So, interestingly, this morning, the mayor of Miami spoke to the media at a community event and said that at this point, they are very confident that the schedule will go on according to plan. The question right now, at least from Miami's perspective, is will they be able to play with fans in the stadium at a limited percent? One of the ones he threw out was 15 to 20 percent capacity, or are they going to actually be able to fill up stadiums? So, you know, here is another piece of encouraging news. And remember, this comes on the heels, Paul, of owner Stephen Ross going on CNBC last week. And he said, hey, it's not even a question about playing football this season. It's simply a question about how many fans are going to be allowed in the stadium at once. Well, Lance, I think all of these comments have to have an asterisk next to them because we understand that if there is a spike in the wrong direction and this virus takes a bad turn and the entire, you know, body of, uh, of the United States winds up, you know, going the wrong way because of this perceived second wave or because of these openings wind up leading to disastrous results, then obviously all bets are off and everybody's optimism is, is going to go by the wayside. But I agree. I don't think there's any question in my mind that if everything continues on the path that it is, and I'm, and I get it. I mean, it may be a snail's pace for some people. I mean, fine. That is what it is. But it's a path that's going to give you National Football League action this year. I believe that. I believe the owners want that to happen. I believe the players want it to happen. The union wants it to happen. The commissioner wants it to happen. Uh, I know a lot of us in the media want it to happen. Uh, so I have no doubt that if things continue to crawl along in the right direction, we will have NFL football. To me, the variables have always been, will there be fans in the stands? I have no idea. Will it be a shortened season? Will it be a a season that's pushed back a little bit because they've got to worry about certain things that have to be met and hurdles that have to be jumped over before they can actually get game one, uh, you know, in, in the uh, in the stadiums. I don't know any of those things. Nobody really does. But here's what I can tell you. Commissioner Roger Goodell has a slew of alternate plans. Yes, the number one plan is to keep everything exactly as it was originally scheduled. That's great. 
That may be a fantasy world. We don't know that for sure. But if they can pull it off, more power to them. At the same time, if there are some little bumps and bruises and little potholes along the way, Commissioner Goodell already has alternate plans that will account for those things. The problem is, if there is a big boom that just blows everything up because of the safety and the, because the virus takes a, a bad turn, that's where the whole thing gets into trouble. So I do believe what these guys are basically saying, they're echoing everybody's confidence and optimism. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I don't necessarily put any more value or stock in what he's saying or what Ross said, because it's always been my belief that as long as they could incrementally progress away from the virus, we were going to have an NFL season. Absolutely. And just to use the exact line that the mayor of Miami said with respect to the potential of fans being in the stadium, this is, once again, his personal opinion. And as Paul mentioned, doesn't mean you got to put a lot of stock and substance into what each individual says, but just, once again, another piece of information. He says, in his personal opinion, he thinks that Hard Rock Stadium, which is the home of the Dolphins, might have to stay at 15 to 20% capacity for fans to be able to maintain social distancing. But once again, Paul, that's a statement that is made on June 1st. The season mm-hmm. is not scheduled to start until September. Preseason games, of course, in August. A lot can happen in the span of two months. But I think the generic feel is that football will be able to be played. And I always say this, if you can get the players on the field in a safe environment, Paul, and we can be able to play out the schedule as everybody in the NFL had hoped, that to me is the key, and it's a small sacrifice if we have to have limited fans, at least in the early going. Look, Lance, we've already discussed how some of the European soccer leagues, specifically in Germany, and I believe also in England, if I'm not mistaken, have already gotten back to play. Now, here's the big deal in this country. Major League Baseball thought they were going to move ahead and get themselves on the field, but because of dickering between the players' union and the owners, now there seems to be some question as to whether or not they will actually start playing baseball. Look, it would be great for the NFL. The sooner that the MLB folks get their act together and get on the field and start going through some of the idiosyncrasies of the logistics involved, the better off the NFL is going to be because they will watch and they will learn from Major League Baseball. I've always said this, for the lack of a better term, each and every league is a guinea pig for the NFL. Because if the NFL is going to be last, then the NFL can watch and learn Mm -hmm. from what's worked for other leagues, Paul, and also what hasn't worked. However, I will say this. It's interesting you brought up baseball. And remember, there has been some baseball that has picked up and is being played in Korea, for example. So, you know, we actually see that happening. But in fairness, Paul, not to get too technical here, there is, to me, a distinct difference between the spacing in baseball versus the spacing and interaction in football. Mm -hmm. I think we have to at least be realistic with one another. Same thing when the NBA hopefully starts up, at least their plans are late July, maybe early August in Orlando, that also involves much closer contact than what we're talking about with respect to Major League Baseball. Oh, there's no doubt about that, Lance, but there are a lot of other logistical issues in terms of the stadiums themselves. And if you're going to even discuss the possibility of fans coming to these games, 
Now you have another whole set of logistical problems. Oh, yeah. Okay, are we going to test the fans? Where are the fans going to sit? How are they going to file into the stadium? How are they going to file out of the stadium? Are they going to be able to use the concessions and the restrooms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? The clubs, the boxes, what are they going to have access to? These are are an entirely different set of questions that have nothing to do with the function of the game. And I think what you're addressing is the function of the game. And you're right. Football is a lot different than any other sport. Obviously, rugby would be the closest thing to it. And I'm not sure what they're doing in Australia regarding Australian rules football or rugby right now. But that would be the closest thing in terms of the field of play. I'm talking about the logistics of the stadium environment. That's another whole ball of wax. That actually may be one of the biggest upsets on this program thus far, the fact that you haven't been staying on top of Australian rugby so that you can update the masses on what's going on in that sport. Kind of disappointed to hear that, Paul. Well, little secret, Lance. I've never watched it. Boy, that was real drama that you built up there. We were all sitting at the edge of our seats to determine whether or not there was validity behind that statement. Oh, my Lance the closest, thing I've, with gotten, you here. The yes, closest thing I've gotten to Australian of anything was Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> okay, well, hey, that's well, baby I, steps. I think the, I buy I, that more. I buy the fact that you watch that film much more so it. than you consume rugby. And I have gone to the Outback Steakhouse a number of times. Okay, now we're really stretching. Now let me ask you this. For clarification purposes, there are multiple versions of Crocodile Dundee. In the series, have you watched them all, or have you only watched one of them? Oh, I—I I guess Paul Hogan is yes. the Crocodile Dundee that I'm familiar with, and I am familiar with that one too. But he made multiple movies. Oh, yeah, I don't know I, if it was a trilogy. I can't speak off the top of my head. I don't want to be wrong. I remember seeing two of them, I believe. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you were staying on top yeah. of your game. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a wildlife guy too. Who uh, who got stung by a stingray and passed away? Wasn't there? Um, he was like a, a wildlife version of Jacques Correct. Cousteau, who was the oceanographer. One hundred percent. I forget his name, and he was he was certainly an interesting uh, interesting guy to watch sometimes on television if you were just going through the channels and you saw some of the stuff that he was investigating. But really, I'm not I'm not very much in tune to what's going on in Australia. It's a bit far away for me. That was Steve Irwin, guys. Steve Irwin. There we go. Okay, see? Our very own John Schmelk jumping Thank in you, John. to provide clarification. So, so, way, so you took us on this entertaining ride uh, off tangent, but okay. Well, you brought up rugby, so I wasn't going to hesitate from well, jumping through that. Well, it was brought up in the spirit of a legitimate point. It was. But I also like to take your legitimate points and... Turn them and twist them upside down, as you well know. So I'm never going to hesitate on that front. That's not a problem, Lance. Before we open up the phone lines and we'll get some of your calls in, the other thing that I thought was interesting to cover on today's program, NFL.com had a roundtable discussion, Paul, where they asked a number of their writers and reporters, if you look at the 2019 draft class, who impressed you last season? Who do you think is going to make the biggest jump? from 19 to 20, especially with the unknown of the offseason. And a number of strong candidates were thrown out, whether it be a Nick Bosa, whether it be a Kyler Murray, A.J. Brown, wide receiver of Tennessee, was in the mix too. All good ones. Colts wide receiver Paris Campbell, who dealt with a number of injuries last season. Nikhil Harry of the Patriots, another wide receiver who missed the bulk of last season due to injury. But 
at least as it pertains to the Giants, Daniel Jones was one of the players that was brought up. And the intrigue, as Judy Batista brought up, mm-hmm. was him in sync with Jason Garrett now, a new play caller, knowing Jason Garrett is a former quarterback and how he's worked with a number of young quarterbacks throughout the course of his career. That was her rationale as to why she thinks Daniel Jones could very well make a big jump from 2019 to 2020. Well, Lance, let's put Jones's rookie season aside for just a moment because I think we all believe he had a very positive and productive rookie campaign. But we're going to ignore that for just one second and look at what he's facing in year number two. Yeah, new coordinator, new coach, new system. Those are things that are probably going to get him off to a rocky start. I don't think it's it's beyond belief to say that Daniel Jones may struggle some in the first month, even maybe the first two months of the season. I don't think that's a reach at all. But here's what I will say. Given the fact that this offensive line should be a whole heck of a lot better, and you'd like to think that his receiving core is going to be much more cohesive than last year when they went through all kinds of machinations and combinations, and the fact that Saquon Barkley should be there for him week in and week out, I would say that by midseason, Daniel Jones is going to be cooking, and he will have a very strong second half of the season. I feel pretty confident in saying that because you've got to love what the kid did last year. But to think he's going to come out of the gate and put forth a stellar 16-game campaign, I think that's probably asking a lot, Lance. We've had too many people, football people on our program, tell us about the difficulties in Jones trying to get the system right and in trying to make sure that everybody else on offense is on the same page. Well, especially when you haven't had off-season workouts and you're learning a new offense. So I think all of those points are valid. You touched on what I think is something that's positive for Daniel Jones, Paul, and that is that even though the offense is changing, he did have an opportunity to be on the field with at least the key core of offensive weapons. He's had opportunities to throw the ball to Golden Tate. He's had opportunities with Sterling Shepard, Darius Slated, we know. I mean, they came in together at rookie minicamp, so they've been on the same page. Saquon's been on the field, even though he was hurt a little bit last season with the high ankle sprain. And Evan Ingram, who also was banged up, but Daniel Jones has worked with him. That, I think, is encouraging as opposed to, Paul, on top of learning a new offense. Now you also have to learn the ins and outs of the weapons around you. Because remember, there is a lot of quarterbacks who... Paul, they're returning to their regular offenses, meaning the coaching staff hasn't changed, so they understand that. But they haven't had much work on the field getting on the same page with their wide receivers or their tight ends. So the only thing that Daniel Jones, you could argue, may have to get used to is some changes on the offensive line. Outside of that, I think right now it's fair to say he's got a good feel for the majority of the personnel groupings currently on the roster. I would only add one thing, Lance, and it's kind of a a big picture type of angle here, and that is this. Do you grade a quarterback having a big season or a great second season strictly by his numbers? Because if you do, that's not going to bode well for Daniel Jones because Jason Garrett is a run-first, power-running game offensive coordinator, and he's got Saquon Barkley, and he's got an improved offensive line. And if there's one thing that offensive linemen will do easier than anything else, it's run block, which means Garrett's probably going to overemphasize the Giants' running game early in the season, if nothing else, to help that offensive line find a groove. 
he would be foolish to come out of the gate and have Daniel Jones throwing the ball 35 times a game. So if Jones is only going to throw it, let's say, 22 times a game over the first five or six games of the season, his numbers will not be very impressive. And for the uneducated who simply look at numbers and cumulative totals, they'll say, well, what's Daniel Jones doing? He's just uh, not doing much at all. That does not necessarily mean he's not playing good football. It just means his numbers aren't going to be spectacular. Well, and we've gone over on previous programs how well the Cowboys utilized Ezekiel Elliott, whether it be Tony Romo, whether it be Dak Prescott, makes no difference. They've always leaned on the run game to Marco Murray before that. So that would not necessarily be a surprising trend if they leaned on Saquon early to give Daniel Jones an opportunity to get a feel and then go on from that point. Lance Meadow, Paul DeTito with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So Daniel Jones, one strong candidate, clearly, to make a jump from year one to year two, we want to hear from you. Other candidates, and we'll hit on a few other players that perhaps can really head in a positive direction entering their second season in the league with the Giants. But right now, let's open up the lines at 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. We've got Vincent in Landover, Maryland. Vincent, welcome to the Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Good afternoon, gentlemen. First of all, I'd just like to start off by saying it's an honor and a pleasure. Just to, I've been trying to get through for a while, and this is the first time I've been able to get through. So it's a pleasure to be on with you, gentlemen. Um, well, thanks for you your know, efforts. Appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. Um, I know you're talking about Daniel Jones. Um, I don't know. Personally, I don't know what kind of steps he'll take in year two going into a new book, um, new, a new playbook. But um, hopefully it's more running than passing. Um, mm-hmm. until he builds into that, or if he even becomes that type of quarterback where you can just say, like an Aaron Rodgers, just give him the ball and let him do his thing. Um, if he turns in the net, that's great. If not, if it's more run-controlled and he hits his bomb, he hits his passes off the play action or short passes and hit him deep from time to time, as long as we're winning or competitive, I should say. As long as we're competitive, those, those things doesn't matter. But my player that I like to see – uh, make a jump would be, I can't think of his name right now, I'm drawing a blank. He's the outside line, uh, the, the Sam linebacker, I believe, out of Georgia. Uh, Lorenzo Carter. <laughs> In stereo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the gentleman that um, I would like to see take a jump in year. This is third year, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think he need, we need more production from him on the outside. And also, I'd like to hear your comments on that, but I'd like to end with this. A lot of people have said a lot of negative things about Eli Manning, and I'll be honest, I wasn't a great Eli Manning fan. I wasn't a big fan of his. But if you put Tom Brady, Phillip Rivers, if you put Drew Brees behind the offensive line that we've had over the last I don't know how many years, I don't know how great those quarterbacks would have looked. And last year with Daniel Jones being his first season, I know everybody wanted to, hey, let's get him in, let's get him in. I think if Eli would have had a chance to to, to play that season with a little bit better line than he had the year before. I think we may have a lot of those games that we were close in. I believe we would have won because Eli may have taken a few sacks, but he's not really known for really fumbling the ball away like that. Um, but that's just my opinion on that. I just think he, he just got blamed for so many things. It just wasn't his fault due to the lack of production on the offensive line. So thank you, gentlemen, for, ha- gentlemen, for having me, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Please call again, Vincent. Thank Thanks, you. Vincent. Appreciate the phone call. Well, Lance, you know, I think one thing we always have to keep in mind about Jason Garrett, and look, we've discussed why we think that he should lean on Barkley early, 
But I think the other thing you have to you have to say is Jason Garrett, it's in his DNA to want to run the ball. This isn't just about protecting Daniel Jones or about making sure the offensive line finds a groove. This is also something that Jason Garrett believes in. He was, you know, brought up in the NFC East. He was a quarterback for the Giants, a quarterback for the Cowboys. He coached, uh, you know, under under Saban with the Miami Dolphins, then became head coach with the Cowboys. It's in his DNA to want to play tough, physical, run-oriented football. That's just the way this guy was built. Well, think about when Garrett played for the Cowboys, okay? Forget the coaching, Paul. He was backing up Troy Aikman. They had arguably one of the greatest running backs in NFL history and Emmitt Smith behind arguably one of the greatest offensive lines in NFL history. So if you look at the blueprint of his career, forget the coaching career. I'm just talking about his playing days with Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer. The Cowboys were always built on the principle of lean on the running game, beat opponents up with the offensive line, have everything else play off of that. So nobody should be surprised that he's brought those principles with him to the coaching ranks. But every season is different. The game has evolved. The game has changed. And I also think the other part of this equation is not to say that Saquon Barkley is not capable of having success, but you had mentioned maybe lean on the run game early so that it gives Daniel Jones an opportunity to get used to things. Remember, Saquon's going to have to get used to, if there's a few new offensive linemen in the mix too, Paul, he's going to have to get used to the blocking, the sure. holes, the tendencies of the offensive line. Let's not forget about that too. No, I, I, I again, the, the evidence is overwhelming that that's the way Jason Garrett is going to have to go. And don't forget, when he was with the Giants in 2000, backing up Kerry Collins, Tiki Barber was a 1,000-yard back as part of a thunder yeah. and lightning with Ron Dane. So that was another run-oriented based offense. Uh, look, it, here's the thing. If Jason Garrett has... Daniel Jones throwing the ball 35 times a game, especially right out of the gate, it would go against everything that he was brought up to be as a football guy, aside from all of the smart reasons we've already mentioned. Now, the caller brought up a player who is entering year three. We were focusing on rookies making the jump to their sophomore year, but still relevant to the conversation. Brought up Lorenzo Carter as a potential player that could very well have a breakout year in year three, or I would take it a step further, Paul, needs to have a breakout year because mm -hmm. of the pass rush question mark. And this is a player that I think a lot of people are focusing in on. Four sacks in 2018 as a rookie. That jumped just to four and a half in 2019. Well, what can he do now in year three? A lot of it is going to be based on what Patrick Graham asks him to do. And the other part of the equation is, and once again, this is not an excuse, but it can't just be pushed off to the side. Paul, when you look at Lorenzo Carter, 2017, he was at Georgia, okay? He was learning that defense. 2018 and 2019, he's with James Betcher. Now 2020, he's with Patrick Graham. So, for those of you counting at home, that is the third different defense in the span of four years that Lorenzo Carter is going to have to do. And let's go back to Georgia versus the Giants. Remember, Paul, there were things that Georgia asked him to do he within that defense. He played all four linebacking positions, Lance. All yeah. four. So, he's been moved around. He's been asked to take on various roles in a very short period of time. To say that that doesn't impact the development of a player, I think, is being naive. I totally concur with you. And quite honestly, as I watched Lorenzo Carter last season, I did not necessarily think he was used in a way that would best max out his production. But, 
again, the Giants needed to do what they needed to do. James Betcher had a scheme that he wanted to implement, and he was going to do everything he could to make it work his way. Fine. Uh, that's no longer an issue, and now it's up to Patrick Graham to find out not only if these guys will run his scheme and make it work, but if he can adapt to what they do best. And I think that part of the of the uh, equation is probably the most important. Now, as far as other candidates, because we were focusing on Daniel Jones, members of the 2019 draft class that I think have the potential to make a significant jump, let's stay with that linebacker position. The one player that comes to mind, O'Shane Zimenez, Paul, mm-hmm. as he now gets set for year number two. This is somebody that I think showed some nice flashes towards the latter part of last season. Once again, new defense. Also, he, unlike other guys, we're talking about making the jump from Old Dominion to the NFL, so there was that challenge too. But here's another player that if you're looking for, okay, where are the Giants going to turn for productivity in the pass rushing department? I think he's another name that certainly comes to mind. Well, you know, what I'm most interested in with him, Lance, is how are the Giants going to get him on the field and what are they going to ask him to do? The production doesn't come in the blink of an eye. You've got to put the guy in position to succeed. Now, is, is he going to be on the field on third and long at the weak side linebacker spot? Or is Kyle Fackrell going to be on the field in that spot? And Zimenez is going to be on the sideline watching from the bench. I don't know the answer to that right now. But if Fackrell winds up with this, you know, double-digit sack season like he had a few years ago with the Packers when Patrick Graham was his linebacker's coach, well, then we're all going to say, um, guess what? Fackrell deserves to play because he's getting it done. It seems to me that both of those guys are weak side linebacker guys who you're going to want to get after the quarterback. And I'm not sure that there's room for both of them on the field at the same time. I I think it's going to wind up being one guy's going to dominate those snap counts as opposed to the other guy who simply is going to have to sit and wait his turn. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because remember, Fackrell snaps went down last season with Green Bay. And Patrick Graham, of course, was not with him. He was in Miami. Mm -hmm. And this was because of the arrival of Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith, their two elite pass rushers. But even though his snaps went down, Paul, his hurries and pressures remained steady and even increased. So I guess what I'm saying is, Fackrell's the type of guy he's been exposed to. They're going to utilize me a lot. They keep me on the field, which was 2018. And then in 2019, okay, they didn't utilize me as much, but I still made the most of my limited opportunities. And that, to me, is a much more important characteristic, efficiency in snap count as opposed to just totals. So my point is, if you claim that Zimenez and Fackrell may be committee this season, let's just say that hypothetically speaking, that Fackrell is used to being in that situation based on what he experienced in 2019. Well, I'm going to take a step back here, and I'm going to try to wrap a bow on this thing. To me, it's about the production you get from the weak side linebacker spot, okay? that That's what it's about for the Giants. I don't give two hoots about are they going to be Zimenez's stats or are they going to be Fackrell's stats. Now, I'm a big Zimenez guy. You know that. I've always liked him since they drafted him out of Old Dominion. The X-Man is a guy who caught my eye when you watch the tape. I think he's got a world of potential and big ups. But as far as the 2020 season, 
the Giants need to get maximum production out of the weak side linebacker spot, and it doesn't matter whose name is on the back of the jersey. They need stats out of that spot. And if it turns out that such and such plays X number of snaps and gives them six sacks and 20 pressures and the other guy winds up playing so many snaps and he gives them eight sacks and 20 pressures, well, guess what? That's 14 sacks and 40 pressures. That would be wonderful. And I could give a hoot who gets the snaps, you know? And people are going to say, oh, well, you know, such and such didn't develop or such and such wasn't worth the money. That's not what it's about. It's about getting production from the position. Let's not get into egos here about who gets them. It's about getting production from the spot. It's almost like a baseball situation where they say, okay, what did your right fielder give you this year? Well, I don't care that it was a Casey uh, Stengel platoon. I care about what did the position give me. And that's really the issue here, Lance. I'm with you. Hey, you can get 42 sacks as a team. If it takes 10 different guys to get there, who cares? You don't get brownie points for that. In an ideal world, you'd love to have a double-digit sack guy. But the bottom line is, if 10 different guys give you four sacks, then you know what? It's all about the finished product and the production at the end of the day. Well, yeah, because that's the way this team is built. This team is built that way. They don't have a Batman. If you had a Batman, you'd say, I want Batman to get me 15 sacks. And if he doesn't, it's a disappointment. But when you're going with a Justice League pass rush, okay, the whole team has got to give it to you. And you're just looking at the totals. You're not looking at the individuals. 973-667-1960 is the telephone line. And we've got a line open right now if you want to give us a ring and weigh in on a variety of topics pertaining to the Giants. Keep in mind, it's a new number so it's 973-667-1960. And you could also utilize hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter or interact with us on Twitter at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. Now, speaking of questions, you have all done a great job submitting questions also through our website, Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. So, Paul, let's get to some of those. And we certainly, once again, appreciate when we were not able to field phone calls. I can't thank all of you enough for staying involved in the program. It really gave us some great questions to react to, so keep those coming. Doing an excellent job on that front, and let's get to a few today. And this one first comes from Mark, and this actually pertains to exactly what we were just talking about. He writes, the interior defensive line looks like it could be dominant, but it's hard to know what to think about the rest of the defensive front seven. What do you think the ceiling is for this group and why. And keep in mind, Paul, he's talking about the entire group, front seven. So he's talking about the line and the linebackers, not necessarily just the front that Patrick Graham is going to utilize. Where is the upside? You know, the upside is the sky's the limit if you consider that in the past there have been teams, basically the the Belichick type of, of defense, and quite frankly, even to some degree, and I hate to put Rex Ryan in the same sentence as Bill Belichick, but there have been times where Rex Ryan was was a schemer more than he was anything else and was able to do things with his scheme that raised the overall level of the defense. Now, don't get me wrong. He had several Pro Bowl players on his unit. So it wasn't like he was camouflaging and using smoke and mirrors to get production out of a team that absolutely had talent to put on the field. But the point being, if you are going to be a schematic-based defense that has to do it more through X's and O's than you do pure talent, yeah. Is it going to be harder to get it done? Sure. But can it be done? 
absolutely. But how high is that sky? Where is that limit? God only knows until we actually see what Coach Graham's going to do. I mean, we're we're in the dark here, Lance. We're I hate to say it, but there are no light bulbs in this room, and we're just feeling around trying to get an idea of what it is that the Giants are going to do. We're speculating, and and the only thing I can say is I have confidence in Coach Grant because I know the guy well, and I know where he's coming from. But that doesn't mean it's going to work. Well, the upside of the front seven is tied in with the term of the unknown, which is essentially what you hit on. Now, the unknown could be really good because then other teams have no idea what you're going to do or it could be well you don't have a lot of proven commodities that you know about going into the season so I think the upside is right in that big gray area if you look at the Dolphins where Patrick Graham came from last season Miami last year had 23 sacks which is certainly a number that put them right at the bottom of the league but to your point Paul Patrick Graham came from a defense last season where he didn't have a great deal of talent to work with. Proven commodities is what I'm talking about, okay? No disrespect to the players on the Dolphins. Listen, anybody in the NFL, it's hard to get here. So to say that everybody is not good, that's completely misleading. The bottom line is they didn't have a lot of elite players, specifically in the front seven, and that's why their pass rush struggled. So if you look at what the Giants have to work with, Paul, from that standpoint, we talked about Kyler Fackrell. There's intrigue there. But he only's had one season where he's had double-digit sacks. Mm-hmm. Then O'Shane Zimenez. Okay, there's upside there based on what we saw at the latter part of last season. Dalvin Tomlinson has been a staple of the Giants' defense, but you know he's not a big sack guy. Dexter Lawrence. Okay, another young player. Intrigue, potential, but still a small sample size. And then as far as the linebackers are concerned... Lorenzo Carter, we just talked about, upside and potential there, not necessarily a proven commodity that you know what you're going to get out of him. And then as far as the other guys that they're looking at, I wouldn't consider them sack guys. David Mayo, whether it be Ryan Connolly coming off an injury, Blake Martinez, you know, these are guys that can rack up the tackles and hard hustle players, but I don't know necessarily if they're guys that you go in thinking, hey, we can even get four or five sacks out of them. So once again, There are playmakers across the board that have potential and upside. There's just not a lot of proven commodities that you can hang your hat on. You know what, Lance? I think the the upside to the front seven is more tied to the secondary than it is anything else. Because if you're going to play the kind of schematic-based defense that Coach Graham wants to play, you need to know that your corners can play press coverage. They can, you know, play man and, and do enough to allow the rest of the guys to run the schemes and the camouflages and the gimmicks that you may want to run. If you don't have the corners on the outside that can do that and hold people up and make them second-guess themselves and make them have to hold on to the ball a little bit longer, then it doesn't matter what your front seven does. They're sunk. Absolutely. And that's why everybody who brings up New England, for example, well, New England had a very strong secondary last season. So while they didn't have necessarily that elite pass rusher, you could say to yourself, okay, Stephon Gilmore, he's going to cover people, and he's going to hang with them, and he's going to buy the front time. The McCourty twins are seasoned pros in the secondary. They've been there. They've done that. A guy like Jonathan Jones at cornerback, also somebody that they've been very pleased with in terms of what he's brought to the table. Now, the Giants... 
they have a mix. They have some veterans, but they mostly have young guys. So I'm with you, Paul. I think the development of that secondary is certainly going to say a lot. And let's head back to the lines with that being said. Scott is in New Mexico, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. How are we doing, Scott? Good. Good afternoon, guys. Hi. Uh, as I look at the Giants in the formation this year, it looks like they're trying to parallel what New England is uh, with a rash of good linebackers, a lot of safeties, corners. Uh, but the one thing the Giants don't have, uh, they don't have a Willie McGinnis type of player. They don't have a Logan Mankins type of player on the offensive line. They certainly don't have a Rodney Harrison in the in the uh, cornerback or safety position. If you had to pick out three players that have to step up to sort of fill a role like that, at least as the current roster is projected, do you have players in mind that you have that you can say these are the guys that have to step up to make our team sort of similar to that? In other words, they really have to their pass rush has to get better, and as uh, somebody like a Dexter Lawrence, the guy they're going to look towards. And also, uh, as I mentioned, on the offensive line, is it Zeitler that has to play much better or just marginally better than he played last year to cement the line? I was just curious if you had any opinions in that area, since they seem to be mimicking what New England did last year. And I wonder if they need to have their own identity since they don't have players like that yet. Well, keep in mind, though, all of those players that you threw out were not in New England last season. So, I mean, those are guys that were in New England really as the dynasty started. So if you look at New England's team last season, uh, they, as I mentioned, they had some veterans in the secondary. They had Kyle Van Noy in their front seven, Jamie Collins. And I wouldn't necessarily consider those guys Willie McGinnis, as you mentioned, or Rodney Harrison, and they still had an extremely productive defense. So I don't think we should be focusing, Scott, to answer your question so much on names, which fans sometimes get too caught up in. It's more about, do you have a guy that's going to produce? That, I think, is the bigger question, and that was what Paul and I were hitting on. As far as one guy, see, I don't think this is the type of Giants defense, Paul, where there's a one-guy savior, where if you're the coaching staff, you say, if we get X amount of production out of this one guy— all of our prayers are going to be answered. To me, this is the type of defense where you need at least four or five guys to make a significant stride. And when I say four or five, I'm talking about at every single layer of that defense, not one guy smack in the middle, and then all of a sudden any issues from last season completely disappear. Yeah, I think you're right, Lance. I think at every level of the Giants' defense, they need one guy who is going to step up and become that X factor. You're going to need somebody in that secondary who's going to be a big play guy. Could it be Xavier McKinney? Could it be Jabril Peppers? Might it be one of the corners? You're probably better off if it's one of the safeties. I think if you get the corners to just play well, building off of what we said a couple of minutes ago, if they just play well and then one of the two safeties just becomes a star, that would probably bode well and better for them. Then you're going to need someone from the lag-macking unit to step up and become a guy that people are worried about. Might that be Fackrell? Might that be X-Man? I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you this, along the defensive line, I want it to be Leonard Williams. I want Leonard Williams to be that guy who steps up and becomes the guy on the defensive line that people worry about. So I think they need someone at each level who becomes more of a pain in the butt to the other team. I don't think there's going to be anyone there, anybody, 
who becomes the, quote, impact player that they need because the Giants don't have any one great impact player. But can they get one guy to be the, quote, leader of each unit at the three levels that can be at least more of a pain to other teams as they move forward each and every week. And on the other side of the ball, you name the wrong guy on the offensive line. Kevin Zeitler was easily the Giants' best offensive lineman last year. He doesn't have to step up at all. It's it's all the other guys who have to play better. Zeitler at right guard, I mean, really, there's not much to complain about there. He is a very good player, and that's what he's always been. And it remains to be seen what happens in terms of left tackle Nate Solder. Are they going to experiment with other options? He's certainly a guy that needs to step up. Will Andrew Thomas start it right? You know, all of those options are going to say a lot about what becomes of the offensive line. Will Hernandez, does he have to get used to a new tackle? Does he have to get used to Paul, a new center? That's why if you were to ask me one guy in particular that I'm probably keeping close tabs on, I would say it's Will Hernandez. Because Will Hernandez, you can argue, Paul, he may be dealing with the most change more so than any other offensive lineman this season. See, I'll go one better and say it's got to be the center because the center's making the line calls. And we know they've got a new offensive line coach with a new offensive coordinator. We don't even know right now who the starting center is going to be. We know the Giants have candidates, but who is it going to be? If it's going to be P.O., well, he's got to play a heck of a lot better than what he's put on tape. If it's going to be Lemieux, well, then he's going into a new position and is going to have to get it done very, very quickly because guess what? You're getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. And there is not a lot of learning curve here. You better be good right away out of the box. And if it's going to be Spencer Pulley, well then, Spencer, you got to play like you did two years ago when you came into the lineup the second half of the season and put good tape on the field. You're going to have to be that good. You, you can't do what you did last year in that one game against the Jets when you got your one chance and didn't do so well. you gotta, you got to play your best football like you did in 2018. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, 973-667-1960. That is the telephone number, 973-667-1960. Let's go to another question, also related somewhat to the defensive side of the ball, of course, if we choose to go in that direction. We go overseas for this question. It comes from, let's get this situation straightened out as my computer jumped on me here for a second this comes from Andrew in Edinburgh Scotland and he gives some background here my girlfriend's father who's from the Bronx he writes and actually studied at Fordham so Paul is doing backflips as I read that converted (laughs) me to the Giants about five years ago and I've never looked back well that is nice to hear so here's his question I was wondering which position group this is a really good question is affected the most by not being on the field together during the offseason? Well, it's the offensive line. I mean, that's where I was going to go as well. We've had so many conversations about this. And you'll remember, Lance, I believe it was CBS Sports analyst Aaron Taylor who had come on with us and just basically said, My goodness, this is going to be yeoman's work for these guys along the offensive line to get the job done given the circumstances. They've got a lot of changes coming up, and in particular, he was most concerned about the pass protection, which is all the more reason, as we said, for the Giants to make sure they come out of the gate with a lot of Saquon Barkley. Well, here's the thing. 
The offseason is limited as it is. Even if we weren't dealing with this global pandemic, Paul, where you can only get so physical with your offensive line to begin with in the offseason. So now they can't even go through the basic movements on the field because it's all through Zoom meetings. It's all virtual. So you're removing even the minute details that you were hoping. Because, Paul, I would say even getting on the field and working on alignment plays, I know there's no physical contact, but just getting the mental reps and taking those mental reps and at least moving your feet around can at least help, especially if you're integrating a new offensive lineman. You can't even do that. So now you're banking on, okay, going straight to training camp, digesting a new scheme, and making up for what you lost in the offseason. I think it's the offensive line that wins that question by a landslide. Mm -hmm. So if it's that far from the rest of the group, let's at least take it a step further, Paul. If you had to go with the second most important group that is impacted by not getting on the field, who would you lay out under those circumstances? The secondary. I just I'm looking at this secondary right now and I I'm trying to figure out is McKinney going to be the starting free safety or is it going to be Julian Love who got a chance at the end of last season and showed flashes who is going to be the corner opposite Bradbury we don't know what the status of DeAndre Baker is today and and if it's not going to be Baker the Giants have a bunch of other corners to choose from but does anybody there have a proven resume that says they could step in if necessary and become the weekly starting corner? I mean, Lance, there's a lot of gray area there. Well, and then also let's not forget about the slot. What about the slot position? Sure. That's another one. Is it going to be Julian Love? Is it going to be Grant Haley? Is it going to be Darnay Holmes, who's a rookie, who hasn't even been on an NFL field yet? That, to me, adds another question mark. So I think, yeah, if you were to look at it from a defensive standpoint, the secondary probably the most impacted by not having on-field work and then on the offensive side of the ball, certainly offensive line. Now, if you were to ask me for another option, had they had much more change at wide receiver, Paul, I would throw in wide receiver as another candidate to say they also would be most impacted without on-field work. But the fact that, once again, as we started off the program with, Daniel Jones has had work with at least the top three guys. That's why I don't feel as if the miss of on-field work, at least for that group, is going to negatively impact the team. Look, the one really good thing that you can say about the Giants going into this camp or whenever it is that they finally get back on the field is that at least now they've got a lot of options to look at. And if this guy doesn't get it done and that guy doesn't get it done, well, in a lot of cases here, there's a third guy they can look to and say, okay, this is your chance to get it done. They have compiled over the last couple of years because of Dave Gettleman options that they can at least turn to and say okay you deserve a chance let's see if you can win the job as opposed to in some previous seasons when in a number of spots the Giants simply plugged the guy in because they said oh there's nobody else in the room you're the next guy up it's your job and it didn't matter if he was really any good or not because they didn't have anybody else they could turn to there were no option b or c or d in the room and that to me 
is where the Giants have made the biggest improvement. They've given themselves some choices and some options that if this guy doesn't get it done, all right, get his butt on the bench. My friend, you sit down because we got somebody else over here chomping at the bit who wants a chance, and we think he deserves a chance to maybe take that job away from you. Best way to spell out your point that you just laid out is go back to 2016 when Spags was the defensive coordinator and everybody was wondering, well, why don't they put in other defensive linemen in to give breathers to JPP and Olivier Vernon? And the bottom line was, Paul, Spags didn't feel that confident that if you take those two guys off the field, all of a sudden the production Mm -hmm. is going to stay steady. And I brought up the numbers just to confirm. Olivier Vernon that season in 2016, he played 94% of defensive snaps. Now, JPP didn't play as much, but JPP was still at 71% and change that season. Now, to put things in perspective, the next defensive end, Paul, on the roster in terms of snap count was Romeo Okwara, who played 33% of the snaps. Kerry Wynn was at 10.5, and Double O was at 15 So just think about the difference between JPP and Olivier Vernon to those other three defensive Mm -hmm. ends. That, to me, spells out the point that you just mentioned. It's all about competition, Lance. Not just because it gives you options and alternatives, but the competition pushes your starters to be better. Your starters know they have to be at their best because if they're not, well, then there's somebody looking over their shoulder itching to take their jobs. 973-667-1960. That is the telephone number. Once again, 973-667-1960. You can give us a ring. A variety of Giants topics that we've covered over the course of the program. Our main question to you, players that you think need to make a significant jump, specifically from the rookie class of the sophomore year, but if you want to throw somebody else out there, we had a caller bring up Lorenzo Carter. That is certainly welcomed, and you can continue to submit your questions to us on Twitter at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He's at Giants W-F-A-N. Let's go to another question, and this one comes from Ken. Last year, I only recall seeing a few designed running plays from Daniel Jones. We probably don't want to see him running too frequently, but do you (laughs) think the Giants will utilize Daniel Jones on more designed running plays, fewer designed plays, or about the same as last year? Well, Lance, I think from watching what, what Jason Garrett at least oversaw, even though he wasn't always calling the plays in Dallas, we do know that the moving pocket, whether it was Prescott or uh, Tony Romo, was a part of their offensive look. And Daniel Jones certainly has enough athleticism that I do think you will see some more rolling pockets and and you will see him move around a little bit more back there. But I would be very disappointed, and this is not going to come as a surprise to you, if they decide that Daniel Jones needs to start carrying the ball to gain yardage. No, 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 no. That is Saquon Barkley's job. Daniel Jones does not need to be running forward a whole lot. If he's got to move laterally, move horizontally, do some side-to-side work, I don't have a problem with that. And I think he's got the ability to make plays that way. Yeah, I think the mobility will be incorporated with Daniel Jones, more so in terms of freeing him up to throw and not so much freeing him up to run. You've got Saquon Barkley. You have a versatile guy in the backfield. It's not as if you don't have an option that could easily break down the defense. And here's the other thing. 
that I think is important to know. You brought up the quarterbacks that Jason Garrett mainly has worked with during the course of his coaching tenure in Dallas. Tony Romo and Dak Prescott. Okay, well, Tony Romo had a number of injuries, right? that he suffered throughout the course of his career Mm -hmm. by getting hit, right? The back injury specifically, and that ultimately opened the door for Dak. Dak, let's not forget, in 2018, many people overlooked this statistic, and this goes back to why sacks, the number alone does not tell the whole story, and the number alone should not be dictated by the offensive line play. The Cowboys in 2018, even though they won the division and had a very productive season, Dak was sacked over 50 times that season, which was on the extreme high side of the NFL. Now, that wasn't necessarily because the offensive line played bad. It was also a product of Dak holding on to the football and buying the defense an opportunity to get after him. So, once again, the mobility that I think will be worked in will be for Daniel Jones to free himself up to survey the field and throw the ball as opposed to him being a big staple of the running game. Let's put it this way. During Daniel Jones' three years as a starter at Duke, he carried the ball an average of 11 times a game as a rusher. To me, (laughs) no way in the world do I want him coming anywhere close to that number in the National Football League with the Giants. Well, and here's the other thing with that number, and this is where context is important. Why did Duke have him run that much, Paul? They well, had part to. Of, Their offensive line was horrible. Of course. So he had to run for his life. It's no different than Josh Allen to, once again, bring mm-hmm. in other NFL teams as a means of comparison. His rookie year in Buffalo, right? Why was he the leading rusher? He had more opportunities to have success than LaShawn McCoy that season. Well, the offensive line didn't give him enough of a chance. He had to run. He was forced into that. No that doubt. was part of the Duke narrative. I think also part of that Duke narrative was the fact that you had wide receivers dropping the football, and not necessarily a bunch of consistent playmakers around Daniel Jones. Guys, there's a reason why Duke hasn't had a lot of offensive playmakers drafted in recent history. (laughs) No disrespect, Paul, to the program, but come on. Let's at least bring reality into the circumstances here. No, and that's absolutely true. And when you look at what they did with Jones last year, he only ran the ball 45 times in, in his 13 games. You know, although one of them was a cameo. So 12 games started and 45 rushes. Uh, You know, we're talking less than four runs per game, and that's fine with me. It it, it better not be more than that, not when you've got Saquon Barkley on your team. And there, of course, were opportunities. For example, the go-ahead touchdown against Tampa Bay, Paul. You know, part Mm -hmm. of that is, well, let's read the defense, and if it's going to part like the Red Seas, of course you're going to run. So I don't think they're going to limit him. They're going to give Daniel Jones, hey, You have the opportunity to run. The defense is backing off. Take it. But it's not as if there's a number of designed runs, I guess is what I'm saying, where, hey, Daniel, we want you to think run first. No, it's more of, Daniel, option A, B, C, and D. E could be a run, but it should be a last resort. The key word here is horizontal. Daniel Jones can move around horizontally. Look, Fran Tarkenton did a ton of that. The friend, the scrambler, not only did that, he ran figure eights back there. I mean, it was pretty unbelievable (laughs) if you had a chance to watch him when he was playing for the Giants. But Fran's point was, I'm going to run around back there for survival and to try to make a play and to get the ball out of my hands into somebody else's. Fran did did not want to run the ball for yardage. 
That was never his purpose. Now, did he do it sometimes? Sure he did. But his primary objective was always to run, to buy time, to get the ball to somebody else. He did not wish to be the ball carrier and did not wish to be the brunt of the defense's hits. Let's head back to the phone lines at 973-667-1960. Devon is in Greensboro, North Carolina, joins us on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Devon? How are you doing? Hi. Doing very well. What do you, you have know, for us? Um, one of the reasons I called in, the 1960 is my birthday. That's when I was born, June 6, 1960. And, uh, well, happy I'm, pre-birthday, by the way. We're a week oh, early, but that's okay. <laughs> Enjoy yes. the cake. That's right. Hey, what I wanted to know was, do you think, because like, I don't see about six or seven teams change their jerseys or whatever, or pants or whatever, do the Giants are still going to, or will they bring back the, the red jersey? Oh, I don't see those red jerseys coming back anytime soon, if at all, to be honest with you. You oh, know, wow. I know they, they did for a time. Uh, about a decade or so ago, go to the throwback red jerseys for the quote alternate look, but I uh, don't. I don't see that coming back anytime soon. Yeah, because you know, it would, it, when me and my brother talk about, he, he would like the red jersey and maybe the red pants or something, something different with the Giants. Well, I'll tell you this, the Giants' record with those throwback red jerseys, because you remember before they were big blue, way, way, way back when they actually had red jerseys, and that's where the whole throwback came from. It was an homage, or an homage, I guess is the word, to the, the very, very, very early days of the Giants when they had red jerseys. Well, when they went to those throwbacks some years ago, uh, I can't tell you what the record is. I'm embarrassed not to have that at my fingertips. But their record was horrific. Those red jerseys oh, did wow. not do them well at all. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm a fan of when John Mendenhall. Love yes, John Mendenhall. Out of Grambling. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. John Mendenhall. I, I, I had the jersey. Mendy's not it. doing well, by the way. He's he's in poor health. And I'm, 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 I'm very to sorry that. to report that. I'm very sorry to hear it, too. He's gone through a lot of ups and downs in his life, and, and, I, and I wish him all the best, and, and hopefully he'll be able to, uh, to sustain uh, you know, uh, whatever it is that, he, that he's got to get through. But, but Mendy, uh, Mendy was a hell of a player. Yes. I, I, he was my kind of like an idol, man, because to me he was short than all the other players. Well, he was a fire uh, hydrant. Yeah, you know, yeah, he really was. He, I mean, an undersized was, defensive tackle. And, oh, man, he had penetration. He would put heat on the quarterback, played the run exceptionally well, and he was tough as nails. Yes, that's why I liked him, because I, I thought he was just a heck of a player. For those young folks uh, who don't know about Mendenhall, go back to the mid-'70s, okay? That's, that, yes. was, that was Mendy's era. All right, Devon. Thank you. You got it. Appreciate Thank the you. phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. As far as the red jerseys are concerned, I don't know about the team, but I can tell you this. When we do get back in the facility, I'd be more than happy to put on a red polo during the course of the program, and I guarantee you I will at some point. So if you're looking for us to incorporate the color red, I would say there's a better chance of that happening than perhaps the Giants putting on and showcasing a red jersey. The red polos look good, Lance. They I do. always like them. I am a big fan of the red you know, polo. Indeed. But not a fan of the red jerseys. Yes, now, before we close up shop here, just yes. to bring things full circle, I did look it up. So, Crocodile Dundee is a trilogy. 
There was the first one in 1986, the second one in 1988, and then Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles came out in 2001. I don't think I saw the third one. Okay, so you at least saw the first two, which is encouraging to hear. And I'm probably better off not having seen the third one. Yes, because you probably would be extremely critical. You're more of an old-school guy anyway, and I'm sure that applies to film just like it does to football. So I would not be surprised under the circumstances. Yes, I think society is better off that you have not been able to give your review of a film that came out in 2001. We're all better off for that. Good idea. With that being said, that is going to wrap things up for us here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We thank everybody for weighing in on the phones. You can continue to give us a ring at 973-667-1960. And thank you for submitting your questions. Multiple ways for you to continue to do that. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. Or you can individually send them to us on Twitter at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants, W-F-A-N. That is going to do it for us. Paul, always enjoy the conversation. Look forward to do it again later this week. Good to talk to you, Lance. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll have a new episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live up and running again on Tuesday starting at noon Eastern. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. Have a good one.